Two weeks ago, we finished off talking about the intertestamental period, and the last thing we talked about was the Septuagint. What is the Septuagint? Anybody remember? 73 translation of the Old Testament. There you go. Great translation of the Old Testament. And that got us into all questions about what should and should not be in the canon. So this week, we're going to talk about canonicity and textual criticism. Um, if you were here four years ago, I did an equipping class with this material. But that class is no longer available on the, online, so I've updated it and we're gonna do it today. So, to talk about canonicity, if we wanna understand canonicity, we don't really need to know church history right off the bat, but you do need to know some doctrines, and these are all doctrines you probably know about, but we're just gonna touch on them. Inspiration, inerrancy, and preservation. So that's where we're gonna begin and that, that'll take us right into canonicity and textual criticism. So, I want to start with why is this important? Why do we even need to talk about this? It's important to be able to explain <coughs> what's in the Bible. We live or die by whether that, that is the truth or not. Our whole foundation of our relationship with God relies on is that true right. or is it not? Right. Anybody ever heard of Bart Ehrman? Bart Ehrman, he used to be an evangelical. He used to be a believer. He went to Princeton Cemetery, I mean Seminary, and uh, he came back out as an atheist. He went and his professor had him write a paper on some chapter in the Gospel of Mark and how to resolve an apparent contradiction in that chapter. And he said he went through all these exegetical loopholes and did all this maneuvering and he thought, my paper is wonderful. He turns it in two weeks later. He gets his paper back, flips to the last page in the paper, and the professor says, what if Mark was just wrong? And Bart Ehrman said that was the beginning of his decline and move away from the Christian faith, when he was willing to embrace the idea that the text is just wrong. And if you're willing to embrace that in one little area, it takes you into a whole realm of doubt, because now you can't go to the text and ask, what does the text mean? You have to ask, is it even true? Here's what Bart Ehrman said. What good does it do to say that the words are inspired by God if most people have absolutely no access to these words, but only to more or less clumsy renderings of these words into a language? How does it help us to say that the Bible is inerrant, the inerrant word of God if, in fact, we don't have the words that God inerrantly inspired? We have only error-ridden copies, and the vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals. You know how many young minds this guy pollutes with this nonsense? The issue of canonicity, the issue of textual criticism, boils down to your view of inspiration. What do you think about the inspiration of the text, and do you actually believe in inspiration? What is inspiration? Uh, biblical doctrine. God, through His Holy Spirit, inspired every word penned by the human authors in each of the 66 books of the Bible in the original documents. Anybody know any texts you can go to to prove inspiration? Sorry? Chapter 3, yeah, starting around verse 16. 2 Peter 1, 19 and 20. God moved men to write the Scriptures. He guided them as they wrote. We believe in plenary verbal inspiration. That is to say that God inspired every single word right down to the punctuation. 
And notice, it's in the original documents. Your translation is not inspired in, the, in a technical sense. The inspired text is what Paul wrote, the words that Paul wrote. Those words were carried through history through manuscripts. We don't have the original piece of papyrus he wrote on, but we do have the words preserved in manuscripts. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, when applied to Scripture, it means that the Bible is without error in the original copies. And again, original copies. Once you jump on the inspiration train and you say that God wrote the Scriptures and the Scriptures comprise His words, you can't get off the train. If God wrote the Scriptures, then the Scriptures cannot have error in them. They cannot be wrong, because then God would be a liar or God would be mistaken. So once you affirm that He inspired and He wrote every single word of Scripture, you have to then embrace inerrancy. And if you say, well, the Bible could be wrong in 1% or 2% of it, we just don't know which 1% or 2%, you've just denied inerrancy, and now you have no reason to believe the Bible's inspired and you have no reason to trust what you read, because what you're reading might be that 1% or 2%. Um, this inerrant, inspired text was preserved by God. Um, preservation, I'll give you this from biblical doctrine as well. Preservation as a doctrine refers to the acts of God whereby He has preserved through the centuries the written record of His special revelation for His people. And the question is, how did God preserve his word. Once Paul wrote his letters, once Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote the Gospels, what did God do to preserve them? What is the means by which he preserves his word? Well, there's two ways he preserved it. These are going to be a little confusing at first. Eternally and earthly. Eternally just means that God preserved his word in heaven. Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. You could destroy every single Bible on earth, every single manuscript that we have. God's Word is still preserved in heaven. He still has a copy in heaven. Psalm 119, 152, Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. His Word will never pass away. Matthew 5, you guys know this passage. Not one jot or tittle, a jot, a, 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 excuse me, not an iota. An iota is a very small little letter in Greek. There's, it's called an iota subscript. It's tiny. A tittle would be like a hook on a letter. Every bit of it was preserved. Every bit of it was maintained. But there is no direct statement throughout in Scripture that says that He will preserve a perfect copy here on earth. There's no text in Scripture that says that you will have in your hand a perfect copy that is exactly a duplicate of the original. There's no text, on earth, there's no text in the Bible that says He will preserve the original copies. When we talk about earthly preservation, we're talking about God preserving His revelation here on earth 
through his providence. He providentially preserves it on earth. He doesn't do it miraculously. He could have said, hey, Paul, you're going to write this letter. And then he could have made something about that papyrus where it would never degrade. Kind of like the children of Israel in the wilderness. Their clothes never degraded. He could have done that. But he didn't. He uses people to preserve his word. I'm going to give you some biblical examples of this. Exodus 31. That sounds a little late, but okay. I think I got my numbers wrong here. Exodus 31, God writes the Ten Commandments. I don't think that number reference there is correct. but He writes the Ten Commandments. He gives them to Moses. They're written on stone. It says, by the finger of God. Moses takes them down. Exodus 32, he gets down to the bottom of the mountain. What does he find? Golden calves and parties. Whole bunch of sin going on in the camp of Israel. And so what does Moses do? He smashes them. The written revelation of God on earth, the only copy on earth that was available, is now in pieces. And now no longer available. So what is God going to do? Exodus 34. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. Moses, go cut out two new tablets. Now, there's a little secret here. This isn't actually a secret. See where he says, and I will write? The Hebrew verb tense there indicates that God will write it through Moses. It's God working through Moses to rewrite it. The idea of inspiration. This is a providential act. There's another example in the Old Testament where they lost the copy of the book of the law and they had to rewrite it or they had to go out and find it again. Uh, Jeremiah and Baruch. Jeremiah wrote out what God said and that copy was destroyed. So what did he have to do? He had to go back and rewrite it. It's preserved through people. Why not miraculous? I asked this question earlier. Why do you think God didn't do it miraculously? Why didn't he just keep Paul's original writing? Good point. Ark of the Covenant became an idol. The bronze serpent became an idol. Any other reasons? In what way? Okay. Yeah, because he wanted to use people as a part of it, right? Um, I'm sorry? He chooses the foolish over the wise. So you'd be able to, if, if it was truly the word preserved for all time, without a doubt, people would be able to use earthly wisdom, not faith. Okay. One of the reasons is, these are all good. You can't prove a miracle. If someone comes and says, this is the original copy of Paul's writing, how would you know? The, the claim would be, well, that's, that's faked. That's a replica. You've, you've doctored this. 
That's not true. Nobody would believe it. And some of you had said this. He, he leaves a trail of evidence. By using providence, by using people to preserve it, he leaves us a trail of evidence. You can go back and prove what the text should be. You can go back and prove what was actually said and what was actually written. And I hope by the end of this class, you'll agree with me that it's without a doubt. Okay, questions so far? This is all pretty basic. Canonicity. What is canonicity? Canonicity refers to the church's recognition and acceptance of the books of Scripture as God's inspired word. Canon comes from a Greek word. It's a Greek word that was used to describe a reed or a measuring stick. And was used to measure, and it became the standard or the rule. Scriptures became the standard or the rule of Christian conduct, of how you were to live. And so, collectively, the Scriptures became called the canon. And it refers to all of the books, all of the texts that the church has recognized as being God's inspired word. So this brings us to the real question. Who determined the canon? Who decided, <laughs> she said the Pope, <laughs> who decided what, what is in the canon? Who decided what gets to be in the Bible? The councils. That's another big one. There are two basic views here. The first one is that the church, the church decides what is the canon. Catholic apologists will tell you that the canon is a tradition of the church. And the church made this decision through the councils. Uh, the Council of Trent in the 1500s in response to the Reformation. They supposedly infallibly declared what the canon was. And they claim they base that declaration off previous councils. Little secret for you, there's not a single council that agrees with what they said. All the councils affirm different books when it comes to the Apocrypha and the Old Testament. They claim it was the church. And therefore, because the church determines what the canon is, the church is the only one who has the authority to interpret what the text says. And the church has the authority to determine what it means. It is rather convenient, yeah. What are some problems with this view? I'm going to demonstrate some of these in a minute, but... When you go through Scripture and you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, over and over again, they're always referring to Scripture. Anybody know when the first church council was? Boy, I wish I was... I had a book giveaway today. This would be a good book giveaway question. Yeah, the first council in church history, so after biblical times. I'll give you a hint. Constantine, around 300, it was 325, was the Council of Nicaea. Now, we're going to use that date, but the Council of Nicaea didn't discuss the canon. It wasn't even brought up. But let's use that date. And let's just assume for a moment that this view, that the church gave us the canon through the councils, through the Pope, let's just assume this view is true that when you get to the New Testament and Jesus turns to the Pharisees and says, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have life, but you know not that they testify of me, what was he talking about? 
if the church gave us the canon, the people he said that to should have turned back to him and said, what scriptures? We don't have scriptures. The church hadn't even been founded yet. First council that discussed the canon was in the 390s. That means the church would have gone almost 400 years without scripture. And the councils that discussed the canon were provincial councils. That means they were bishops and pastors from local churches in that area, and they came together to affirm the canon that they believed was correct, the canon that they had recognized. They were not making declarations for the entire church. Third, if that view is correct, then the church, well, excuse me, the church is dependent upon Scripture for its formation. The only reason the church knows anything about God is because of Scripture. The church formed because of what Scripture says. It can't then turn around and say it's over the very Scriptures that give it its legitimacy. Do you have something? Yeah, doesn't Paul put that on his head in Romans when he says, you're without excuse knowing how the whole world was built. You didn't need the Scriptures. You know God is there. So it kind of chicken or eggs that whole argument. Yeah. Yeah. Because Paul writes Scripture but the scripture says you don't need the scripture. <laughs> well, the scripture says you don't need the scripture in the sense of knowing that God is present, yes, right? Yes, that there is a God. <clears throat> right. So the church can't in one, one moment say, well, the, the scriptures is what gives us our authority. And then the next moment say, we have authority over the scriptures. And we've determined what the scriptures are. The scriptures existed before the church. The second view says that the people of God simply recognized the canon. They recognized the canon on the basis of inspiration. Books are canonical not because the church said they're canonical, they're canonical because they were inspired. And the local churches merely affirmed the inspiration of the text. Do you see the difference? How did this happen? How did the church begin to affirm the text? It happened in three stages. The first is circulation. Paul sits down and writes his letter to Ephesus, and he sends it to the church in Ephesus. And they get the letter, and they read it, and they read it to everybody in the church, and then somebody sits down and makes a copy of the letter. And they take that back home to their church in Laodicea, or in Colossae, or in Philippi. And they say, I have a letter from Paul, the apostle. And they read it, and they learn from it, and then they make another copy, and they carry that to another church. And the texts are circulated because these are written by the apostles. As the churches receive them, they begin collecting the books. The church at Ephesus receives a letter from Paul. A guy from Laodicea shows up. He's got another letter. It's also from Paul. We don't have that one preserved, by the way. But then they say, oh, that's we're going to keep that one. Then a guy from Colossae shows up, and he's got a letter. And they recognize that these are from Paul. These are inspired scripture, and the local church begins to collect these books. And they add it to their Old Testament. These are individual churches making these decisions. 
This is not one big church council just deciding for everybody. This is the canon. And that will help you in your apologetics because you know what the Muslims will say. The Muslims will come to you and say, well, the only reason you guys have that Bible is because Nicaea kicked out all these other books. And they threw out a whole bunch of books. But when you understand how the canon formed, you understand that there was no council who made this decision. These were churches all over the world deciding which books they were going to recognize as being inspired. Now, once they get these books, they begin to use them in their worship. They begin to use them in their church service. The earliest witness we have to this comes from Justin the Martyr. Justin lived around 100 to 150 AD. His life likely overlapped the Apostle John, or came very close to it. Justin the Martyr wrote an apology. An apology is not saying, I'm sorry. It's, an, it's a defense of his faith. There were people going around telling the Romans that Christians were cannibals. And they ate and drank blood, and they ate flesh in their services, and the emperor obviously was getting a little worried about these Christians, and who are these people talking about this new king? And so Justin says, look, I'm going to write a letter to the emperor and just explain to him what we do in our worship service. Notice how he uses scripture here. And on the day called Sunday, there's a gathering together in one place of all those who live in cities in the country, and the memoirs of the apostles, or the writings of the prophets, are read. As long as time permits, then when the reader has ceased, the president presents admonitions and invitation to the imitation of these good things. This is in the early 100s. And you have a church service centered around the reading of Scripture and then the teaching of that text. Expository preaching. And notice the books, the memoirs of the apostles are put alongside with who? The prophets. Now you have the formation of one single canon. The old and the new. The last part, so we've talked about circulation, collection. The last part is recognition. Local churches began making statements about the content of the canon. Church in Ephesus said, these are the books that we affirm. Colossae, these are the books that we affirm. Rome, these are the books that we affirm. Um, I want to give you some evidence in the, in the text, in the Bible, that they actually had Scripture. And again, go back to this idea that the church gave us the canon. Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said, Did you, ever, did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? If the church gave us the canon, what is he talking about? There was no church council. There was no church at this time. The Pharisees should have responded to him. We don't have scripture. It's not there. Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures. Do you hear any doubt here on what the canon is? There's no discussion here about what is and is not Scripture. Nobody's confused about what is inspired text. 
I quoted this verse earlier, John 5.39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Long before a church council defined the canon, long before any church recognized the canon, individuals were reading and searching the scriptures, believing that in them there was eternal life. Whether they were mistaken by how they read it or not is a different story. They didn't need a church council to tell them. John 7, verse 42, Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David? And this is the point where they'll say, yes, but he's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament. They don't know what the New Testament is. The New Testament is still being written at that time. So, so he, he can't be talking about that. That's why we need the church to tell us what the New Testament canon was. Because the early church could not recognize it without a declaration of the church. Does that hold up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not only did the churches do it after the apostolic age, I would argue that even the biblical writers and the people in biblical times were doing the same thing. First uh, Timothy 5. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He quotes two different people here. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. Anybody know where that comes from? The law. Comes from the law. Anybody know which book? It's out of Deuteronomy 25. Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. So he says, Deuteronomy is scripture. But where does this other quote come from? Yeah. Luke, you're close. You're good. Good. No, it's Luke 10. So here you have the Apostle Paul, who died in 67 AD, quoting Luke, a New Testament writer, and he says, this is what? Scripture. The canon was affirmed and recognized long before a church council ever showed up. Okay. So the biblical writers understood what Scripture was. The people in the New Testament times understood what Scripture was, and they could recognize New Testament books. Uh, why did they need to define the canon? Why were they out there making these statements about what the canon is? If this is so obvious and so clear, what's the point of making these statements? Why did we have church councils where they tell people, this is the canon? Yeah. That's what that was about. Yeah, the Council of Trent was in response to the Reformation. They started defining the canon because there were people coming out and saying, there are other books that you should be including. Or guys like Marcion. Anybody know what Marcion did? 
See, you're going to get some church history here in this class, too. They're doing the history of heresy downstairs. We're probably going to talk about them. Marcion is the guy who started cutting books out of the Bible. He rejected most of Paul because he thought it was too Jewish. And, like, had this really truncated Bible. And he started going around telling people, these books are not canonical. These books are not inspired. And so the church had to come out and define what the canon was because he's out there confusing everybody. There was also some churches in the East who were accepting books they shouldn't. They were accepting a lot of the apocryphal books, which we'll talk about in a minute. And so the Orthodox churches, Orthodox, small o, not Eastern Orthodox, the Orthodox churches had to come back and help people understand, look, this is not; these are not correct books. This is the canon. And then there's the Edict of Diocletian. Anybody know who Diocletian was? He's a Roman emperor. Somebody knows your church history. Diocletian did not like Christians, and he understood the scriptures were an important part of the Christian faith. And so he outlawed Bibles. He outlawed the Christian scriptures. And his order was, find all the scriptures and destroy them, and anyone who possesses them dies. Now, if you're going to die for a book, don't you want to make sure it's the right one? And so this order goes out, and people go to their elders, they go to their church, and they say, okay, you know, I've got the, the Gospel of Thomas over here, and I've got the Gospel of Matthew which one of these should I keep? And so churches started defining the canon, helping people understand these are the books you keep and you make sure you hide them. These are the books you let them find and you get rid of those. So you don't lose your life for something that's not Scripture. Makes sense, right? Now we have um, early witnesses to the books they accepted. We can go back and we can look. We have witnesses that we can say, these are the books they accepted. Things like the Muratorian Canon, dated to somewhere around 170. It lists 21 out of 27 New Testament books. You say, wait, 21 out of 27? That's because some of the books were a little later in full acceptance. There were some churches at this time that accepted all 27, and there were some that accepted just 21, and some that accepted less. It would be nice to say that the formation of the canon was quick and simple. And it was like this one minute, you know, everybody go check this website, and this is, this is the canon. <laughs> that would be really nice if it happened that way, but it didn't happen that way. The canon was accepted over many centuries, and so by the time of 170, the people who put together this canon, they had 21 books of the New Testament. The first part of this canon is actually mutilated and destroyed, and the text is irredeemable, you can't read it. But the opening part of this book says, the third book of the Gospel according to Luke. Why is that interesting that he said the third book of the Gospel according to Luke? It's the third gospel. It's the, it's the third gospel. 
it is assumed that the part of this canon that is illegible is Matthew and Mark. We don't actually know what that part is because we can't read it. Here's a picture of the part of the Muratorian canon. Um, I did want to point out that the Muratorian canon recognized that it's the third gospel because it included John. The four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, have always been accepted as part of the canon. They have always been accepted as legitimate. From the earliest time of the church, you cannot find a single moment where anyone seemed to accept any other gospel other than those four. Craig Keener is a historian. He wrote a book called Historical Jesus. Here's what he said. Speaking of Irenaeus, an early church father from about 130. Irenaeus treats Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the only gospels universally accepted by the orthodox circle of churches. You'll hear there's movies out there that say, well, you know, the only reason you only have four gospels is because the Catholic Church removed these others, or the councils removed the others. There's no historical evidence of that at all. All the evidence points in the exact opposite direction. There were only four books accepted as the Gospels for the Christian faith, and they are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the same books that you have in your Bible. Um, then you get out to about 367, Athanasius of Alexandria writes the 39th Festal letter, and in that letter he lists the canon that he accepts and his churches accept, and he gives all 27 books of the New Testament. After Athanasius, you have people like uh, Jerome and Augustine. They also list all 27 books of the New Testament as being accepted as canonical. Yes? Are they also listing Old Testament? There. Okay. There. Um, Augustine accepted part of the Apocrypha. Jerome, Origen, Athanasius, Melito of Sardis, and many others did not accept the Apocrypha. I would note um, Jerome uh, knew Greek and Hebrew. Of the early church fathers, only two of them knew Greek and Hebrew. Jerome and Origen could read Greek and Hebrew. And they are two of the early church fathers who rejected the Apocrypha. Uh, yeah, there's nothing else I want to say on that. Okay. These lists were then affirmed or confirmed by the Council of Hippo in 393 and Carthage in 397. Now, Council of Hippo, we don't actually have any records left over from that council. We don't actually know what they said. But we do know the council right after, the Council of Carthage, affirmed what they said about the canon. They pointed back to the Council of Hippo and said, we affirm their list. Here's what they said. The books of the New Testament, the Gospels, four books, the Acts of the Apostles, one book, Epistles of Paul, 13, of the same to the Hebrews, one epistle, of Peter, of Peter, two, of John the Apostle, three, of James, one, of Jude, one, the revelation of John, concerning the confirmation of this canon, the transmarine church shall be consulted. He just listed your entire New Testament. That's before the fourth century. Yes.
Thessalonians got three books. They might put both of those together instead of having them separated. Yeah. I think there's evidence of that in the Old Testament. You'll see numberings from 22 to 24. And today we have 39 books. And so you have like First and Second Kings that were combined, First and Second Samuel combined. The 12 were into one. Uh, the 12 minor prophets were one book. In the New Testament, I don't think there's evidence of that occurring. First, uh, second, and third John. I think third John was accepted later. Second Peter was accepted later. Um, they were individually accepted. And so books like Hebrews took a while for people to accept. Uh, Revelation was written in the 90s, 90 AD. And so it was later to be accepted by the church. Um, some people doubted the authorship of Second Peter. So it took a while for that one to be accepted as well. I do want you to note that last sentence. Concerning the confirmation of this canon, the Transmarine Church shall be consulted. Now, the source I got this from leans, I think, a little bit Catholic. They capitalized church, which I think is their way of trying to say it was the Catholic Church. But I want you to note something concerning the confirmation. Is this an infallible declaration that they're telling the whole church what they will believe? The Transmarine Church is the church that's across the sea. This is the list we affirm. And we're going to send this list over to the church over the sea, and we're going to ask them to confirm it. They're just looking for affirmation. What do you guys think? Individual, local bodies determining what the canon is, and then looking to other churches to see if they affirm the same books. Okay. So what are the tests of canonicity? How do you know if something is canonical? We're going to go through this kind of quickly. Um, apostolic or prophetic authorship, evidencing inspiration. When we say apostolic, we don't necessarily mean that the apostle necessarily wrote it himself. Mark was not an apostle. Luke was not an apostle. But they were closely connected to the apostles. Mark was friends with? Yeah, Luke and Paul were together. Mark was friends with Peter. Mark did know Paul. They had a little bit of a falling out, though. And then at the end of Paul's life, he said, bring Mark back to me. I want to, he's useful to me. So I get those two, confu those two confused, too. So apostolic or prophetic authorship, they need to be connected to the apostles. In the Old Testament, they need to be, the books need to be written during the time of a prophet, when God is actually speaking, not during the intertestamental period when God is silent. Consistent doctrinal agreement with existing scripture. If you read a lot of the apocryphal texts, you will find things that are completely outside of Christian teaching. I'm going to show you the Gospel of Thomas in a minute. And then universal acceptance by the people of God. Um, whether you go to Protestant churches, Catholic churches, Eastern Orthodox churches, all of them affirm the 27 books of the New Testament. The only part of the Old Testament that's in question is the apocryphal text. It's the only; Those are the only texts there's not universal agreement on. The 39 books that you have in your Bible are all universally accepted. Nobody doubts any of them. Let's look at the Gospel of Thomas. We're not going to read it, but it was written in the 2nd century. 
One hundreds. Thomas would be dead by then. Yeah, no, Thomas is long dead. Yes. So why is it called the Gospel of Thomas? Anybody know? Different Thomas. Yeah, or the guy's name wasn't even Thomas. Yeah. Okay, so you're you're living in the the second century. Uh, you don't have a web page. Um, you don't have television. You can't advertise on radio. But there's some really well-known people out there. You know, like the Apostle Thomas. And you want your book to be read. And you want your book to be circulated. So you attach his name on the front end of it. That'd be like if I wrote a book and I put John MacArthur's name on it. People would read it just because it says John MacArthur on it. Same thing here. It wasn't written by Thomas, but he put Thomas's name on it so people will read it. This is a form of writing called the pseudepigrapha. Now, if you're willing to lie about who you are, I don't think you're writing scripture. But he's writing well after the apostles have died. And his text teaches Gnosticism. I'll show you what it teaches in a minute. And then you go into the early church. Early church from about 100 to about 300. Quotes scripture a million times. If you were to take all of the quotations of the New Testament from the early church fathers and bring them all together, you could rewrite and reproduce the New Testament, save about 12 verses. Not a single one of them quotes the Gospel of Thomas as being Scripture. Not a single one of them points to him and says, hey, this is the guy you need to be reading. They point to all the other 27 books, but not him. Um, that's the Gospel of Thomas. Looks like an interesting read, right? You want to know what some of the stuff it teaches? He teaches that Jesus was a wise and divine teacher, but not actually human. Gnosticism says that the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. Anything physical is bad. Any fleshly desire, any physical desire you have for comfort, that's bad. And therefore, Jesus would never, God would never take on human form because God wouldn't have anything to do with anything physical. So Jesus could not be human. Well, that's a problem for us. If he's not human, he's not our representative. It teaches salvation by learning secret knowledge. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, to know. And they said that we have the secret knowledge that you need if you want to be saved. It teaches that there are many gods. Man is capable of saving himself. And what I said earlier, the physical body is bad, the spirit is good. Does that sound Christian to you? A lot of these, if you just go through and read them, like if you find like the Gospel of Barnabas or, you know, go online and look them up sometime. There are, there are some of these that talk about like a 12-foot cross that comes out of the tomb and starts talking. It's really weird. But if you just read them, you'll, you'll realize this is not Christian. There's no way anybody would confuse this with an illegitimate gospel. All right, that's canonicity. Any questions, comments, concerns before we get into sexual criticism? Well, I think the third point on um, test of canonicity was widely accepted by the people of God. Is that something that we look back to or we even still today want to do? Because I feel like 
the term people of God is becoming, you know, more and more liberal. And I even just think of mainstream Christianity kind of rejecting Old Testament. So that third point, how do we, what's, what's the best way to think about something being widely accepted by the people of God? Yeah, I think that starts by just uh, narrowing down your focus on who the people of God are. Um, I wouldn't put someone like Anthony Stanley in the people of God. He rejects the Old Testament. He, he's got bad theology. Um, Kenneth Copeland, I wouldn't put in the people of God. So if I go to people who have their doctrine right and who have a right view of theology in general, I'm more likely to say they're part of the people of God. But part of this is looking back and just saying, okay, our modern society can go haywire and most people might reject it, but I can look back in 2,000 years of church history and say, they've universally accepted this. So if I'm going to reject it, I better have a really good reason for rejecting it. So I think the answer is both. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Any other questions, comments? Uh -huh. When you look at the edges where it's torn, that, it looks like a rat was chewing on it. A rat was chewing on it. <laughs> he should have eaten more. <laughs> All right. Textual criticism. Um, I heard a guy, uh, we were talking about, I brought up textual criticism. He said, well, I don't listen to people who criticize the Bible. Okay, textual criticism is not criticizing the Bible, okay? I know there's like higher criticism and you should stay away from it. Textual criticism is a very useful and helpful science when it comes to the issue of the canon and knowing that we have a text that has been preserved, okay? Um, what is textual criticism? Again, this is from Biblical Doctrine. It's the careful examination of the existing ancient copies of Scripture in order to determine the purest copies of the original text. So we were talking about the collection and the distribution of Scripture. Someone has a copy, they handwrite another copy, they send it out. Someone else takes that copy, they copy it, and they send it out, right? And so you end up with this pile of manuscripts. Textual criticism goes back through those manuscripts and compares them all to see what was part of the original and what is not, what was added later. Basic process. You examine all the existing reliable copies. You identify the alternate readings. Where does one manuscript differ from another? And then you select the reading that has the most support throughout those manuscripts. Which reading is most likely going all the way back to the original text. Does everyone follow that? Okay. Um, some questions they ask that are important. What is the oldest reading? If you have a reading that shows up in 100 AD, and then you have a different reading that the first time it shows up is in 700 AD, which one is more likely to be the correct one? the earliest, the one that was closest to the original. 
What is the shortest reading? You would want to ask that because scribes were more likely to add to the text than subtract. They were willing to add because they thought by adding to it, I can help people understand what's being said. And so you'll, if you go through your New Testament in the NASB, you'll see certain parts where there's little brackets. That's someone adding to the text. The end of Mark 9 through 20, Mark 16, 9 through 20, was an addition that was made later on. And it shows up really late in the manuscripts. The ending of John 7, beginning of John 8, same situation. It was added much later. has brackets. Someone added it. Uh, what is the most widely attested reading? Which one shows up the most? Which reading best explains the variance? These are all things that textual critics look at when they look at the manuscripts. What kind of manuscripts do we have available? One is papyrus. Uh, papyrus was made from a plant and they cut strips into it and then they hammer the pieces together and it forms a, something like a piece of paper. When it dries out, you can write on it. Um, you can always tell these manuscripts because they are numbered, and the number starts with a P, like P45, P46, P52. Whenever you see that, you know it's a papyrus manuscript. Um, here's one. This is P45. I don't know if you guys can see that, but the text there is all capital letters, no punctuation, and no spaces. That is the Gospels, Acts, and Paul. This is only one leaf. I don't know what is on that particular leaf, though. My Greek is not that strong to be able to read that yet. That takes a while. P45, this is just one leaf. There's 30 leaves. Uh, each leaf has one column, and it, all, it has 39 lines going down. I think your, uh, your, your rat was on this one, too. Here's P52. Um, P52 contains four verses of the Gospel of John, John 18. What you need to know about this is this is the earliest manuscript that we have. It dates back to the 100s, I think around 150. And it's about the size of a credit card. The picture here makes it look really big. It's not that big. It's about the size of a credit card and it has only four verses on it. Some manuscripts are really long. Some of them are really tiny and really short. How are they able to determine what is uh, in the broken, the part that is missing? Um, I think they do that by examining other manuscripts and then looking at this text and that text, and kind of like a puzzle and set it down on top of it, on another one, see where it fits. Um, there's also what's called unseals. These are written on parchment. Parchment is just animal skin. Um, I've already said that. Um, unseals are usually in a codex. A codex is a form of, is like an ancient book. They would take the papyrus, or they would take the... My mind just went blank. The parchment, thank you. And they would stack it on top of each other and then bind it and tie them together until you'd have the ancient form of a book. Um, their numbering always begins with zero. 
you'll see Codex 01, that's Codex Sinaiticus. There's a picture. Dates back to the 4th century. You can go to the British Museum in London and see this. This contains not only the Old Testament, but it contains a complete copy of the New Testament. Dating back to the 4th century. They bound it into a codex. It's one canon. Uh, codex number two, Codex Alexandrinus. Dates back to the 5th century. Contains most of the New Testament, but it's missing parts of Matthew, John, and 2 Corinthians. It also contains the Old Testament. Codex Vaticanus. Anybody figure out where this one is kept? Somewhere in Rome. Uh, it's been in the Vatican Library since uh, around 1481. It dates back to the 4th century. Um, it's likely the best manuscript for the New Testament that we have. It's missing parts of Hebrews, the pastoral epistles, and Revelation. And it also contains most of the Old Testament. Then there's minuscule manuscripts. These are named that because of their very small, distinct writing. I'll show you a picture of it in a minute. These date back to the 9th century. This is about the time where you get the, Masoret the Masoretes, and you get the Masoretic text for the Old Testament. Um, their numbering system is very simple. It just says codex and then a number. There's no zero in it. Uh, here's codex number one. This dates back to the 12th century. You see that really tiny, small print? You're like, no, it's really small. I can't see it. But that's the codex. That's the minuscule script. Um, if you're interested, we don't have time, but if you're interested, there's a really cool website if you like manuscripts. Manuscripts.csntm.org. Uh, Daniel Wallace, who's a New Testament textual critic, um, is going around and he's digitally photographing all the known manuscripts for the New Testament. And he's using like 4K high definition photographs. And you can go to this website and look up these manuscripts and you can zoom in really close on them. It's kind of interesting. And he'll give you dating information and what's contained on the, on the manuscript. So that way, when the rats finally get the rest of the manuscript, or they just degrade enough, and we lose those manuscripts, we will have them preserved digitally, and we'll still be able to use them. That's a really cool website. All right, so how many manuscripts do we have? Uh, Daniel Wallace describes the number of manuscripts as an embarrassment of riches. He says, as far as Greek manuscripts, over 5,800 have been cataloged. The New Testament was translated early on into several other languages as well, such as Latin, Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Georgian, Gothic. The total number of these versional witnesses has not been counted yet, but it certainly numbers in the tens of thousands. So 5,800 and counting Greek manuscripts, over 10,000 Latin manuscripts. And then you have all the manuscripts from the other versions, and then you have all the witnesses of the early church fathers. So, how does this compare to other ancient literature? If you say that the New Testament or the Old Testament cannot be affirmed because there's not enough evidence for it, then can you support any other ancient text? Livy. We only have 27 copies of his work. Scholars love this guy. We only have 27 copies. And the earliest copy that we have for him dates to the 4th century. 
Tacitus. There's only three copies remaining. Seutonius. Just over 200. Now, Seutonius lived from 69 to 140. The earliest copy we have from him is from the 9th century. If you can't trust the New Testament on the basis of the textual evidence, then you cannot trust any text from ancient history. We don't have anywhere near the number of manuscripts for Aristotle or Plato or Josephus or other, any other historian from the ancient world. The New Testament is the most widely attested document in history. Let's talk about transmission. Oh my goodness, we are out of time. Does the Bible have errors? The New Testament has roughly 138,000 words in it. I've quoted two scholars to you today, Daniel Wallace and Bart Ehrman. Both of them say the New Testament has 400,000 errors. Okay. Well, didn't I just say the Bible is inerrant? So how can the Bible have 400,000 errors in the New Testament? That's almost two errors, three errors for every word in the New Testament. How is that possible? The devil here is in the details. It all depends on what you mean by an error. Errors are just textual variants. That is to say, one manuscript differs from another manuscript. And they've identified four different types of variants. One is a spelling and nonsense reading. This could be they changed one letter from a capital to a lowercase. They spelt their, T-H-E-I-R, and they moved the I to the front of the E. Just a spelling error, because some scribe got tired when he was writing. Changes that cannot be translated. In English, if you change the word order, the sentence makes no sense. The run cat street did... Huh? In Greek, you can change the order of the sentence, and it makes no difference to the sentence. You can put the verb on the front and the subject at the end. You can put the subject at the front and the verb all the way at the end. It doesn't matter. So sometimes the scribes change the word order, but they didn't change any of the words. That's still a textual variant. Meaningful but not viable. Meaningful. Meaningful means it changes the meaning of the text. Whatever change was made, it changes what the text means. Viable means... It has the possibility of dating all the way back to the original. Meaningful but not viable means you've changed the meaning of the text, but there's no way in the world this was part of the original. Make sense? Then there is meaningful and viable. The text changes, and it's possible this dates back to the original. It's early enough, there's enough witnesses to validate this. Of these four, the most common one is number one. Number four, meaningful and viable, what actually changes the meaning of the text, and it could be a part of the original, is less than 1% of all the errors or variants in all the manuscripts. And Dr. Bart Ehrman, who says we can't trust the New Testament, he says of all of these, none of them affect any major Christian doctrine. If you can't trust the New Testament, you can't trust any text of ancient history. All right, before we close, I want to show you this. We're going to do a little textual criticism. I'm going to write a text, okay? It's a very long text. 
I'll show it to you. Grace Bible Church. That's my text. That's the original. And I'm going to hand that text to some other people. Okay? And they're going to copy the text. The A here is the scribe that copies it. So this is scribe A who's going to copy my text. And he makes a change. Grace, Bible, but he lowercases the B. That is a textual variant. Someone else gets my original copy, scribe B. He copies it, but he messes up and he misspells church. And he spells trutch. They take their copies and they share them with someone else. Scribe A shares it with scribe C and D. C copies it exactly the way he receives it. And he copies that lowercase b. D says, you know what, there's a lot of Grace Bible Churches these days. I mean, this could be Grace Bible Church of Houston. We have no idea. So I'm going to help the reader out, and I'm going to tell them what Grace Bible Church he's referring to. It's Grace Bible Church of Bernie, and he adds Bernie to it. And this goes on. Scribes E and F get their copy from B. And it just keeps going down. And notice, once you get a change, the change carries all the way through. Here you have the change, the first change, the original, then the second change, and the change, and it carries all the way down. Because the, the scribe is just copying what he received. Now here's my question. Can you get back to the original text? With what you have here? You have two separate lines of transmission. You have one line here, and you have one line here. If you lost the original text, can you figure out what was the original? Of course you can. You can look here and say, Grace Bible, well, I know the English language, and that's not a word. That's got to be a misspelling. And you can jump over to this line of transmission and say, ah, oh, look, it's church. And I know that has to be an error because that one's capitalized. And you can do the same thing. Even if you lost these two, you could still do the same here. Common sense will tell you that's an error. And you can check that B over here. And you can do that all the way down. That's what textual critics do. Any questions? Straightforward, right? Who's ready to be a textual critic? Okay. We're over time. I need to let you guys go. Let me pray real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have preserved uh, your word for us and that uh, we can trust the, the copies that we have. We can trust that we have the inerrant, the inspired text that you have given to us. We ask that you would help us to conform our lives to that rule and that standard. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.